Graphic Nature acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record the show and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and future and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. Due to the graphic nature of this program, listener discretion is advised. Fighting for what's right, for justice, that's what a hero does. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Comic books are pure evil. Satan himself condemns our children to the fiery depths of hell. How a particular tale can come to life in the mind of a reader is endlessly fascinating to me. We have found that all comic books have a very bad effect on teaching the youngest children the proper reading techniques. This balloon print pattern prevents that. I am not a villain. I am a victim. A victim of a society that tortured me. Vengeance will be mine. It'll be mine. It'll be mine. Welcome to Graphic Nature, a fortnightly podcast exploring the inspiring world of comic books, the culture that supports it, the creators, publishers, and people behind the printed pages and digital screens pushing the medium on into the future in Australia and the world. I'm Zoran Ilyevsky. On this episode, we have Bruce Mutard. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Zoran. Thank you very much for having me on the show. No, no, you're very welcome. I've I've wanted to get you on the show for quite a while now. You've you've had quite a storied career, forgive the pun. But uh, how how did it all start for you? What was the uh, inciting moment? Well, it did happen later in life, and it might sometimes appear. Certainly, I looked at comics when I was young, mm-hmm. uh, but I was just what was available. And yeah. 1970s Australia, it was Asterix and Tintin because you could get those in your school library and your local library. A few Disney comics and things that your parents or grandparents might give you because mm-hmm. after all in the day, comics were for kids. And maybe the odd thing in the news agent, so like mad. I was never attracted to those very few superhero comics I saw on the newsstand. But that was all I saw that was the world of comics. So I liked them, but I never imagined that I would end up making them. That wasn't on the radar in those days. It was only going much later into uh, the university days and discovering, firstly... In a news agent, the magazine Heavy Metal Illustrated, and it blew my mind with those Euro uh, legends like Manara and Sepieri and Herman and uh, uh, so many of those. And I thought, oh, I didn't know comics could be like this. I had no idea. It's still being printed today, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah it is. Um, not not the same sort of a, a magazine anymore, but it, it's definitely still going. And. Then that led me to trying to find out where more things are like this. I really cannot remember why or how I found Minotaur. Mm-hmm. Um, they were still on Swanson Street yep. uh, in those days, a two-story place. And the comics were upstairs and then I went in there and bang, there was just entire uh, large room full of them. I thought, holy smoke. I, no, I had not. At that point, I just didn't know that existed. I no, didn't yeah. know. I remember my moment was like uh, my moment for uh, walking into Minotaur was the same when they were on Burke Street. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you just, oh, I just had no idea. <laughs> and then where do you start? Well, you have to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You just right. go, you start. But at the same time, um, uh, dabbling in, in, in trying different things. But then what really turned me on to comics was discovering underground comics. And alternative, so the Fantagraphics, Drawn and Quarterly, Ripoff Press, Last Gaps, all those things were telling the story in a manner that I wanted and needed to see at the time. Yep. I didn't know, but and then I realised because of how accessible it looked to make, then I realised, oh, I can do this too. And so we, we're talking about I'm 2021 20, now. And so that's when 
I started to dabble with making because it looked accessible. Yeah. Pen and paper, that's about it. Surely you know, uh, it doesn't look more sophisticated than this. And yet the other side of it is because those comics were appearing, it meant that the space was there. That said, well, if they can do it and appear there, then surely I can. And that's part of the crucial thing. It's about realising that you can do this. There is a space for you to go into to tell your things, your stories, your ideas, should mm. you want. And clearly there was an urge and a need to tell those stories. Uh, but up until that point, I didn't think where or when or how that might be, but those comics were it. Yeah. And so I started just dabbling because where was the comic school? Well, there wasn't, there wasn't one overseas even then. There was nothing. Was the internet there? Well, they weren't around either. Joe Kubert's that started right in the eighties. Yeah, that. But I didn't discover that. No, existed for quite a few years later. Anyway, um, I didn't know. But it didn't appear out of the realm. I like to write and I like to draw. Put the two together, and of course, only by doing you realise the gap between what you're doing at the start and what's out there mm-hmm. is considerable. <laughs> Yep. Uh, which is fine. <laughs> yep. And then just just keep making. And that's all I did. And it gradually, well, quite rapidly really began to re- predominate as my medium of choice. Yep. And uh, so bombing out of graphic design at Swinburne back in the day and otherwise I uh, ended up going on the... Uh, the great government arts support program of it year called the doll <laughs> yeah. for a couple you could you could still do that back then yeah. you could still do that which um, is a, a form of social security for people out there yeah yeah yes it was uh, you know nowadays you know to go on the doll you're asking for a whole load of punishment and uh, pain uh, but back then no you could uh, still do that and i honed my craft yeah you know did the bit jobs did all that stuff the ten thousand hours yes and yeah uh, that was it, really. Uh, that was the, the, the start their medium overtook and I read more and my ambitions grew as my skills had improved mm-hmm. over those years to the point where I started to... I submitted work religiously to the Fantagraphics, Drawn and Quarterlies, all of those, because I said, that's where I want to be. Yeah, I wanted to get my uh, title, like 8-Ball or Hate or Yummy Fur, Peep Show, those titles, they were the, the benchmark for me. Yeah. And I uh, tried, but I just couldn't crack it. So then you go down the self-publishing route. And this was the era when Dave Sim was on the great evangelical push for uh, self-publishing. Yeah. So his guide to self-publishing came out around about that time, early 90s, 92, something like that. And there seemed to be this fertile ground. It was possible. So I just, you know, that's when I uh, just collated the stories I had and... Uh, put out the uh, probably not much remembered Street Smell comics, but those four issues, five, four, back in the uh, early nineties, yep. in the mid nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have any uh, any copies on ice somewhere at home? I do have just very few now. Uh, all number zero is completely gone, apart from one or two for me to hold on to to prove that it existed. Same <laughs> with number one, <laughs> number two, number three. No, I've only got a just a three or four of each, I think. In fact, I discovered some uh, when I was moving house one time and a couple floated up and I thought, where have they been hiding? But so probably about maybe four or five of each now, I think. Oh, that's great. Um, Which is nice, but yeah, that's the only reminder of those. Apart from the original, I mean, technically I could reproduce them all. I could collate them all, the complete street smell that no one really wants, Um, as far as I can tell. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, yeah. But, um, I'm, I'm actually let's talk about that mm. the way that you're that you're already critical of your early work as most artists do yeah. and I suppose yeah. it comes it comes mm. with the job that you know yeah. you're always working on it and so you're constantly refining and so everything that comes before is not as good as what you're doing at that point yeah and in saying that do you look at your work that you're producing now I mean it's been quite a while and it's been what 20 years mm. you're looking at your latest work uh, do you still feel th- the niggling of criticism or your self-criticism that, let's say, you would have experienced when you were starting out and doing those earlier, I those earlier books? Yeah, uh, I think it's down to the individual as to how much of a critical voice they 
whisper into their uh, into their own uh, head. Um, that's always there. It was always there with me. Mm-hmm. I always had a vision of the standard which I wanted to uh, appear at, and, and then both writing and drawing. Mm-hmm. So slightly different. Uh, so the interesting thing, yes, it's still there. Uh, it will always be there. I think it's just part of my character, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm always seeking to push, play with the medium, and take it into places that are interesting or haven't been seen before. Yeah. Uh, if you look at a lot of my works, particularly in the last ten or fifteen years, I have been doing that because I'm just curious. I'm curious yeah. to do it. But in those days, the earlier days, the street smell days, I did. I wanted to to be up there among those uh, comics uh, stars, as I call them, the Dan Close, Chris Weir, and all of those yep. at the same level. That was my goal. And so I always tried to create for my or teach the, myself the craft to achieve that. And so that meant improving the art. So I started out looking much more like a second-rate Robert Crumb. Yeah, right. And but I had the ambition to be a smooth stylist like Jaime Hernandez. But ultimately, of course, I arrived at my own style, which is certainly closer to Jaime's work than uh, others. So most people say I'm of the clear line type of school. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that. Which is uh, very close uh, to what it is, but it's still mine. Yeah, it's still very different. Um, you have the you have the aesthetic. Yeah, of the clean line, but your but your style is still very very well, different. Well, I go to a great deal more detail yeah. than uh, Jaime does, and I stick to uh, he he goes to a much more sort of uh, object type of viewpoint where things look like a car and all that, look like buildings, look like houses, trees, but they're fairly generic. They're not very specific yeah. to the thing. Whereas I, because of the nature of some of the stories I tell. They're set in real and vivid locations and times. I feel like, no, it must be those specific things. Like the sacrifice, for instance. Yes, exactly. Very, very specific in time and place. Mm -hmm. And I went to a great deal of effort to make sure that it looked and felt like it. Um, It's not 100% accurate because it's impossible to get every single gap in knowledge. But it's more than complete enough. And that's, that is actually my aesthetic now. That, that is my mature style. It's the one that I use. And I can still improve upon it, but I think the uh, improvements are going to be less noticeable to yeah, outside right. observers. There'll be yep. tiny tweaks. I see things, I say, mm-hmm. yes, I will do this better and do that better. But from an outside point of view, it may not be quite so noticeable now. But again, that I see as part of my actual practice doing that. I'm always seeking to do that. Uh, I don't. It's not a. I have no criticism or any issue with someone who arrives at a mature style and stays there, and they continue to do what they do extremely well, because that's just where they are. But for me, I need to keep nibbling at boundaries and borders. About and a lot of the time these days, it's about where actually comics appear. Yeah. And how they're used and what they're used for. So in academia, for instance, where I am now. There are avenues for utilising the medium to convey scholarship or explore or do research. And it means finding out what the affordances of the medium are to marry up with that kind of research. Couldn't you you just – that just sounds like you could go on forever and ever and ever because as far as I understand, the only thing that uh, can constrain you in terms of of – uh, creating comics is your limited imagination. Oh, it, it's totally. really the only thing that can stop you. There is no, I don't see the uh, constraints in comics. Yes, sure, there may be areas of subject matter that is extremely hard to find a visual equivalent. Mm-hmm. But then I always keep thinking, yeah, well, perhaps there is still something. It's just, just a matter of getting there and finding it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if I'm not the guy to do it, maybe someone, other lovely person will crack the nut and she'll go yes she'll put the work out and go that's it and we'll all look at it and go that is amazing you did actually do that i couldn't have done it and and that'd be wonderful so but what what is it actually that you are researching slash studying because you're you're a current phd i'm a phd candidate mm-hmm. at uh, edith cowan university in perth and so i'm doing a what's called a practice-based 
PhD. Mm-hmm. So it's a pure research degree. Um, it's not a course in the sense you have classes or anything like that. Yep. What you do is you make a proposal to do new research. So the principal idea of PhD is to uh, fill a gap in knowledge. Right. And that is the means to go in to uh, identify that a gap and and then you make your proposal say, this is the means by which I think I can fill this gap. Right. So in my case... The research is into the uh, documenting and finding ways to make tractable and a viable subject of research the entire making process of comics. Right. So the reason is in looking at comic scholarship, as I have for a while because I had done a master's research degree prior, I realised that most scholarship starts with the finished instance of the comic. That is yep. to say, the basis on which they apply their analytical tools or understanding of comics starts with the finished products, right. the books that are out there, the floppies, what have you, the uh, the web comics, and so forth. And they then apply their analytical lenses to them. So most comic scholars are coming from other fields, so literatures, English studies, Linguistics, anthropology, history, geography. It's a wide, very wide variety. Yeah. Now, it's clear that they love comics. They want to seize upon and have a chance to talk and write about something they love, which is terrific. And in uh, their training, which each field can be quite specific, they use that tool to work on comics. Yeah. And it does mean that it can be a bit dry sometimes, but one thing that's missing is understanding how the comics came to be those finished books in the first place. Right. So essentially I'm looking the other way. They're starting there uh, with the finished book and going toward, uh, to make the research. I'm starting with the finished book, but I'm going the reverse way, back yep. to how it began. Because I'm a maker. Yeah. I've spent 30 years doing this, so I have been there. I've done all manner of work, working. I've write, written only. I've published. I've run comics festivals, uh, everything. So... That's the gap in knowledge. Yep. And so what I want to do is provide a tool, and I have this tool which I've developed, uh, which I call the uh, cycle of erotics. So it, my research title is called The Erotics of Comics, and it's a, an old philosophical use of the word, which is based on, uh, it's called, it refers to desire and pleasure, but what we're talking about is the desire or pleasure of people uh, makers to make these works right because i it was obvious to me and i know from endless conversations with other creators that you really enjoy and you really need to make these things and even though it can be frustrating and so forth in the in the actuality of it and so forth but you still have to make and so this cycle tries to give a tool uh, a, a chart, really, uh, to help all these other scholars look at that process, yep. and then by doing having a, that tool, can then go a little more deeper into how the book arrived to right. where it is, so they're not talking ab- just about it, but how it got there too. Right. Um, and I think it would be a little richer for it. Uh, so that's my uh, research project. So. I've finish up in about six months oh wow yeah i've been at it for three years oh wow yeah all right i didn't know you were there you were working on it for three years yeah 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 it's an phd it was three to four years jesus uh, well yeah. good luck with that this is six months away you, you must be must be pretty happy about getting towards the end of oh, it oh i am yeah i'm done i'm over it but uh <laughs> the hardest six months is still to come the uh anyone who does a phd knows the, is uh, this the, the last uh, year or six months is 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 hell, but that's okay. Getting it all I, together. I knew I was getting what I was getting into, yeah. so don't worry. I'll, uh, you know, I'll be less coherent about it in six months' time. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, what? What after the PhD? Well, one of the motives for doing the doctorate, of course, is it opens the door to teaching at university levels. Right. Because um, it's arrived at the point now where it's a baseline qualification. Yeah wanting to teach and you uh, the, the job listings go out for sessions, sessional teaching or even the rare full-time position 
uh, they all say baseline, minimum PhD. Yeah. And there's that. And that's just a case of earning money. Yeah. You're not making millions from your comics, Bruce. No. <laughs> I want to, uh, you know, ensure to everyone that, you know, don't use the lack of money in the medium as a, as a reason not to make comics. But uh, it is, you know, keep your day job. In the class that I do teach, which is illustration, yes, I, I do tell them that because it's that's the reality of it. I don't. Yeah, it, it's interesting because over the years, being involved in comic shops and mm. and talking to creators and and would be writers and and hopefuls and even you know professionals these days, uh, everybody, whether they're in the retail sector, whether they're in the co- whether they're in creation, whether they're in academia, it doesn't matter mm. <laughs> which realm, uh, or even in in comic media. You don't get involved with comics if you want to make money. No. Well, there's no <laughs> industry here in Australia. No, there isn't. There isn't. But but even it's. I just find it interesting that even as let's say a store clerk in a comic shop that I yeah. was years ago, mm. you weren't making lots of money. No. The the owners of the business were always, you know, struggling mm. to make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is always on the margins a little bit and. Uh, having been overseas to uh, Europe and to that, the scenes and the in the industry even over there, it's actually pretty close to the same. Uh, right. Yeah. So it's not that much better. There's no really, really, there isn't some grass is greener place. Um, Unless, of course, you want to talk about the commercial sector in the US. Yeah, the, the that commercial sector, but the European scene, the Franco-Belgian scene, is seen as being this something of a magic kingdom. It's enormous, uh, and it is yeah, on yeah. scale. Absolutely, uh, you know, they crank out 150 albums a week, um, right. five or six thousand a year. Wow. Yes. So, um, and that's seemingly unimaginable volume. Um, but it's run on pretty thin margins yeah. and uh, the lives of those who create them all and put them together is is pretty uh, precarious still. Uh, you have your superstars who are more secure. Of course. Uh, is it same ratio. It's like any in industry, really. Any industry, it? same thing. But over there, no, no, it's still very difficult and uh, there's uh, too much material. The, you speak to people, publishers and so forth there, they'll tell you it's too much at the glut. And, wow. Uh, it's thin, the margins everywhere. Because you were recently over the, over there, did you go to Angoulême or? Uh, no, no, I've been many, many times, mm-hmm. and I've been to festivals in sort of Poland, uh, Sweden, Denmark, and uh, other ones in France, not Angoulême, UK, and so forth. Yep. So I've, I've, Germany. So I've seen the scenes, yep, and so I've got a pretty good appreciation or real politic view of what it's like. Yep, and that's. I was not despairing about it because I figured, oh well, it's just a bit much the same. Yeah, right. So well, that's kind of heartening to f- to know, really, because mm. you 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 know you you figure that uh, you hear all these stories of of these amazing scenes in mm. in Europe and in other in other parts of the world, and then yeah. when you find out that it's pretty much the the same as it it's is here. The same. And it, yeah, it is good. Yeah, the particularly uh, Eastern Europe and Scandinavia and other places I've visited, it is. I would say they are pretty much the same as here. Right. Exactly the same. Wow. So, and it's not impossible to slot into. Uh, and they're as interested in people making comics from anywhere else around the world as we are about theirs. Well, that's even that's even more heartening. That's great. They are really interested, but of course they don't see a lot yeah. of Australian comics yeah. over there. But they're definitely interested because they like comics people here and comics fans here. You just want to see good and interesting comics. Yeah, that's right. Where they come from is actually makes it only more interesting. Mm. This comic is from Sweden. This one is from Poland. This one is from Czech Republic or something. Well, yeah, it's it. I find it interesting too that uh, a lot of the times it's very rare that you will find. Well, you know, in all my searching, uh, particular publishers that let's say for instance whether they are overseas or here mm. will pick up a foreign language comic and then make, do, go to the trouble of translating it and then yeah. releasing it yeah. uh, in an english based or a western country i should say mm. and uh, when i have had the chance of reading something usually really good stories and yeah. and really great craftsmanship uh, or craft personship yeah uh, no, it's absolutely true um could a lot of those comics cultures 
they're Western comics cultures, but they're Western type societies, mm-hmm. uh, the ones that I've mostly visited. And but there's an extensive array of similar in Southeast Asia as well and elsewhere. The comics culture is everywhere, really. Yeah. But um, the uh, the similarities are so marked, the stories will easily translate. Of course, the difficulty. Look, for instance, in uh, uh, Scandinavia, for instance, they have full access to English language comics because almost everyone speaks English. That's right. Yeah. And you go to their shops. And there's a massive selection of English language comics there. Far less in Swedish. Mm-hmm. Just because it's just easy. You yeah. don't translate into Swedish something that everyone can read in English and yeah. pick it up anyway. But occasionally some do, but mostly not. Yeah. More often it'll be can the Swedish comics creators get their work translated into English, English if they yeah. do that. But sometimes they just actually do it in English to start with. Yeah, right. And just keep the field open. Which which then begs the question for me, uh, what would uh, what would it be like if, let's say, some of the local crew here who have their, you know, 10-page comics mm. translate into Spanish, mm. translate into French, mm. and, and put them up on their websites and see what happens? It would uh, increase accessibility particularly with uh, romance languages like that where the uh, facility with English is less common. Um, that would help, uh, undoubtedly, if you could do that because there is the interest in those comics will be there. Yeah. They'll embrace it. There's no question of that. They yeah. will embrace it. Yeah, right. And all types of comics too. We're not talking just about you know, a select or narrow range. The same thing applies. There, uh, You're going to have people interested in what you do regardless so you might seem esoteric mm-hmm. you might be into abstract comics you might be into them there will be people in these c- countries who will love that kind of material and are making it and indeed if there's not much available in that country in that sort of area they'll be inspired to make it to make it available yeah. and build an audience for that type of comic does uh, any of this kind of feature in any of your research uh or yours is specifically about making you've just gone to these different Oh, no, places. no, the making applies. The, the, the cycle that I'm describing, uh, why or how comics uh, come to be, well, it should apply to anywhere. Right. Because what makes a person want to make these things sh- shouldn't be any different. Yeah. You know, it's the same kind of well of inspiration, the kind of development of a knowledge of how to make. So there's a term for it called tacit knowledge, yeah. which is knowing how to hold the pencil in a certain way at the right pressure to make the, this certain mark or how to put the, uh, the nib in the ink or hold it in a certain way and that. And it's not something that you can easily codify and write about. Yeah, yeah. But you know it. Yeah. And you know it only because you do a lot of it. And in the same way as applying watercolour or doing it digitally, it's irrelevant. There's no specific class of tools. To me, using tools to make comics or any art is, well, use whatever you need to do to get to the end result you want. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's digital, couldn't care if it's analogue, and I tell my students the same thing. Right, Although I must admit in my class, it is specifically more about handling analogue materials because mm-hmm. most of the students come to my class digital natives. Right. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, because they're, they're grown up with all of that digital, uh, means, yeah. digital media and drawing programs and so forth. And they are uh, well-versed in that and they're uh, quite clueless at times with even the pencil. Yeah, right. And even uh, mixing paints or anything. So I, I break them out of their comfort zone that way, uh, only just to get them thinking about making pictures in different ways and, and having to think about what they're doing yeah. and uh, realising what the affordances of old school media alike so even cut paper for instance is another one you have to make pictures out of cut paper it makes you think about uh what how much you can show or say with a piece of cut paper but then that can then feed back into digital world if you want it they're mostly comfortable in the digital world but some of them are are okay and that 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 absolutely blows me away because i remember going to art school as a young Mm. very young man and uh yelling and screaming at the teachers when they were trying to teach me how to use gouache when all I wanted to do, w- in fact, not or not that I only wanted to do it, but I could use the programs that they had, uh, like Photoshop, and they were mm. the, like the earlier versions. Early but the yeah. same work, I remember, I, I timed it. It took me 15 minutes to do the same job in a computer that took me four hours with gouache. Mm. 
And I remember at the time going, what are we even wasting our time with all this analog yeah. crap? I can do this in 10 minutes. But that specifically was graphic design. So you're yeah, talking yeah. about, yeah. you know, shapes and, and that kind of stuff. But yeah. but being able to draw and, and even now as an older man looking at mm. artwork and experiencing and even trying my own hand many years ago mm. at creating comics and, and drawing and, and mm. looking at line work, I always look at the digital work now and, and I've said this many times on the show, I feel not cheated, but I just feel like it doesn't have the same impact. Yeah. Like you're talking about line weights yeah. and you know, if you're using a brush or a pencil mm. in the one stroke, you can have thick to thin. Yeah. Whereas on a computer, they mm. may get, cl- they may be able to, you know, they may be able to code into the paintbrush yeah. uh, or into the whatever. Yeah, you can customize. You can customize. get close. Yeah, yeah you yeah, can yeah. get close, but it's not, it just doesn't have the same feel when you look at it. No, there's something about it. I, I guess still that would be probably a personal aesthetic. Like, you know, for you, you would like to see that that kind of a line, that quality. Yeah. Um, and there'll be others for whom that doesn't matter at all. I suppose. And that's all good because, you know, that this means that when you're looking at material, you're going to appreciate a certain set of things. Other mm-hmm. people will see other things. And that's yeah. all good. Um, that's very uh, diplomatic of you, Bruce. I suppose that's something I should learn. No. <laughs> <laughs> I can be more I, diplomatic with my art. Well, I, it is not even me being diplomatic. It's to me, it's just going, you know, in the end, for me, the only thing that matters is does you as a maker make things that you need to say and show and that there will always be someone who wants to see it. You mm-hmm. just don't, they don't even know it. Uh, but it, when it gets out there, which is, of course, the ultimate and most uh, important incentive to actually making it is yeah. that you can have all your ideas in the world, but unless you make it, no one's ever going to know. You can't just talk about it. You have to actually do it and then get it out there and the people will respond. And there's just an in, a total plurality of that. Mm-hmm. So there's no right or wrong in any of it. It's just what it is. If you need to make it with all those digital tools because that's just how you like it, it's comfortable, then it's great. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, and people will respond accordingly in the same way as with analog or however it is, and we'll all find a happy audience or a medium between those who like that and who like this, and uh, everyone should be happy ultimately yeah. uh, with that. You know, Because in the end, it's just the good comics, the good stories that matter. Mm. How you got there, you know, it's, it's up to you. It's what you need to do to get there. You're listening to Graphic Nature. We'll return right after this short message. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. Uh, we are all over social media. Well, not all over, but we've got a few. We've got Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please jump on Facebook and like us if you're enjoying the show, as well as following us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find all the details on the website, graphicnature.media. Thanks very much. We, we've talked a lot about art and, and making mm. uh, how do you approach your own, let's say, your own process behind writing, whether it be a short book or even a graphic novel? There are several processes, really, but the main one that I utilise, and this is the sort of process that goes behind the big books of mine, mm-hmm. think of the sacrifice and the larger graphic novels. Um, it's, it is very much thinking at first of a story to tell, I'm inspired or motivated to say something and I will uh, spend time writing it out. It is literally just all writing to start with. Mm -hmm. But visual images are poking in, but it's all about the story. And in the case of a book like The Sacrifice or its uh, belated never-appeared sequels, it's getting all that material correct because it's uh, such a big piece of story world building I need to get all that ironed out so there'll be extensive research massive amounts of reading combing archives and so forth to get the story developed and written out I might spend a year on it right and then at that point I'm ready to start to say okay I think the story's all in order and then I'll start to thumbnail it and then that will change it because of thinking visually as opposed to linear, and that does make a lot of difference. But the more recent books I've done and stories, I've gone the other way, where I've just actually started telling the story visually. So we're talking about just 
rough panel, panel after panel after panel, mm -hmm. where I'm just telling the story without a script. But these have been area, uh, areas which have been more autobiographical, so I do know what happened. I don't need to actually plot and plan, yep. but I am telling or recounting rather, so allowing memory to do the trick. So my more most recent book, which was Bully Me or Souffre Douleur, yeah, because it's come out in French, but it's not in English. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it, was it translated? Did you write it originally in English? I wrote it in English, yeah. I don't know French. Right. Um, but no, it was translated. That arrived without a script at first, but it was based on periods of my life, so I knew what happened. So yep. the script in it since was already written. Right. Was about visualizing. Yeah, yeah. Because it was about uh, the torments of being bullied a lot in the school and uh, how that became a sort of a corrosive, uh, cor corrosive liquid on my self-esteem and became, um, uh, as I realised later, a kind of I was my own worst bully. Mm -hmm. Kept continuing the, the pummeling and shaping my life. So it was really a document about that and also how I got out of it. Is there um, a version of it that is in English? Well, there is, but uh, it's just not publicly available. <laughs> oh, right. Is there <laughs> a reason for that? No, 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 there's nothing. I just haven't go, been able to get a publisher for it yet. Oh, right. That's all. Okay. That's simple as that. No, no, I do want it. Yeah, it's meant to be seen, yeah. um, but I just haven't got to find one yet. I have tried. The publishers I, that publish the French version, would they consider doing an English version? No, because it's not outside. It's outside of their remit. Oh, really? Right, okay. They're... Uh, published exclusively in French and in France as their market. Mm -hmm. So to, to go outside of that would be uh, tapping into areas that they just don't have any systems or structures in right, place. Right, 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 okay. But, you know, it's the second book of mine that's come out in France through them. The Silence oh. was translated as well. Oh, that's great. So that... And Silence was a great book too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, that was a book that they uh, published first. So when I had a lunch meeting with the publisher in Paris, few years back and I mentioned that this they're dabbling with this book and he said oh that sounds right up the alley of what exactly what I'd like to do it uh, say la uh, which is a publisher do it and I'll, I'll probably publish it I mean in fact he didn't say I'll probably he said I will yeah <laughs> so right. like a, I, and was, that was certainly the incentive to continue with the project because I knew it was going to appear yeah and of course I was going to do it in English because that's my only language. Mm -hmm. Typical dreary monolingual <laughs> English speaker. Yeah. But I want an English publisher as well. And eventually it will come out. I mean, there's going to be a version of it in the PhD because this was done mostly while I was doing my doctorate. So right. it is actually one of the practice-based com oh, okay. components of it. And so there will be a very, very limited edition run of it. Well, let's let's talk about that for a little bit. You've got that in front of you. That's the French version of That's the book. That's the French version, yeah. Souffre douleur in French translates literally back into English as pain sufferer. <laughs> English title is Bully Me. Right. But <laughs> as I've learned, and this is a little interesting uh, fact in, in when it comes to translation, is that the French do have a word for bullying, but the way it's used and the way it's understood is different. Right. It's the same kind of thing for German, same exactly. kind of thing for Italian. Yeah, yeah. It's how it's actually used and how it's actually understood. And uh, Serge, who is the publisher, said, yeah, we, we have a word so I won't pronounce here for bullying in French, but it's not going to mean it's not the same thing. He understood what this meant in English, bully me, but he knew that he couldn't find that translation that was the same thing. Right. And so I had a friend of mine, uh, Marie, who was a uh, French university trained translator. Oh, uh, she specialised in translating English and Spanish into French. I asked her. I said, uh, "We're struggling with." title here clearly it needs to be something that's known as a type of bullying that we're doing and she came up with this title oh, great. Uh, Super Dula. and she said it, I know it translates awkwardly back into English but in actual usage actual understood yeah. it means very very similar and I've had French speakers afterwards who unrelated to the book at all said no no that, it, that's exactly it that's totally oh, exactly what it means um, that's how we use it so, so, so that now being printed yeah. in, in French yeah. and with a French publisher, yeah. wouldn't that then be easier to go to an English producer and say, hey, here's this book. It's already done. I've got the English language version ready to go. Yeah, it's uh, not so far. But I haven't had the headspace to push it as yeah, hard right. as I might have. Mm -hmm. I have tried 
an English publisher uh, who I knew personally as well as the sort of book it fits into their uh, remit. They tend to do a lot of graphic medicine, Mm -hmm. and this certainly qualifies as graphic medicine, uh, which is quite a subgenre these days. Mm -hmm. crosses over... And it appears in academia quite a bit more, but it's uh, it's a niche that's growing anyway. Because yep. graphic medicine is certainly it's also being used to use comics to be in in clinical scenarios as well. Yeah, um, a whole another story. But uh, and she ultimately passed on it because she's a small press and she says like I just really don't have anything in my calendar and a space for it. Uh, as much as she, she actually quite liked it. She had some problems with the story, uh, which all my readers uh, and publishers, including the uh, French one, said. So I, I fixed it. It was, it was essentially, a, uh, for a while there, it was a book of barely two parts, and mm-hmm. it was uh, missing something in the middle. And so that I resolved. But, yeah, it's you would think so. I thought so too. I keep thinking that it might help, but not really, because it's ultimately... From a publisher's point of view, it is, yes, but can I successfully take the risk of printing and marketing and getting this book into English in a market, be it Australia, New Zealand, UK, Canada or USA, they're all separate markets, and ideally get the money back, if not make a little bit of money. That's what they're thinking. (laughs) And so Serge, a French one, thought, Yes, if I invest this in here, a little bit of an advance. Uh, the, the book was printed in uh, Slovenia yep. uh, because in Europe, the cheap printing is done in the Balkans or in Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. Poland, places like that yep. because they're not outside the Eurozone. So the, uh, um, the currency uh, conversion rates are very, very favourable for Euros, yep. uh, whereas this is why we or everyone here uses China, yep. same thing. And so it worked out. So that's that's really all it is. I'll, I'll, I'll keep trying. Someone eventually, I'm hoping, will do it. I won't be doing it myself. That's the only thing I'll say. It's <laughs> because I just don't have the wherewithal or the means to really do it justice. It needs someone else with the uh, the means and yeah, the, uh, to do it, a publisher. So somewhere, maybe. Um, but because I'm at the... The uh, the sharp end of my doctorate. I just don't. I just can't do anything with it. Yeah, that that's understandable. Yeah. That's mm. understandable. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. How much, if at all, does the doctorate pull on other academics in the comics field? So, like people. I mean, the only people I know really is Neil Cohn out in the Netherlands. Do you use some of their work and build upon that, or is this completely separate? Oh no, no. The nature of the beast in uh, academia is. You've always got to refer to and look at current research, uh, situate your research within the current in order to draw the distinction or difference between yours and theirs. Right. There isn't a lot where I am. What Neil Cohn has done is tangential. He'll be name-dropped. But to be fair, there is an element of a game in all of this because when you're doing a PhD, you need to be showing that you are paying due respect to research, to academia, and to many of these uh, theory. And uh, I don't think a lot of it, for me personally, is necessarily relevant to what I do, but I have found things which I will build into a, a theoretical aspect. And only because I, I have to really show the examiners will be looking for it. Yeah. And there is that. I'm sounding very cynical about it because I am. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, I am. Okay. And Well, it's kind of hard, like you say, if, if, if you're working on, let's say, a, a niche and you're trying to uh, shrink the gap mm. of knowledge and you're in an area where no one's really kind of looked into before, how do you then, do you then have to, tangentially draw hmm. relevant information just to just to make yours sound like it's referencing something. I, yeah, yeah, it's, you got to, <laughs> as I say, situating within the existing body of knowledge. Mm-hmm. It is so there you provide the context and the situation around it so that you say that this is what this sort of research draws from. Yeah. And these theories, these thinkers 
but I am taking it to this place that you acknowledge. So like the term erotics, for instance, arrives, derives from Plato, and I'll explain wh- how he's used of right. it, why I've chosen it. But Susan Tom- Sontag also used it. She called for, you know, that in criticising film and art, we should be using the erotics. That is to say, criticism doesn't often talk about the pleasure involved yep. in viewing. Yep. Uh, it tends to steer more just drier analysis. Was this good? Was it technically good, structurally good? But how? What did it make you feel? Yeah, yeah. And that's certainly my interest too, because I know that we make because we want to and because it feels good. It feels good to draw those lines, to paint those marks and things. It's, it's nice. You spend a great deal of time doing it mm. in those who do it. Well, you, there, m- there must be a compulsion. <coughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. You know, whether it be therapeutic, whether it be, whether it be exercising some sort of uh, idea or, you know. Yeah, yeah well, it, it is, you know. There, there's, it can be everyone's responses to that process or the pleasure will be uh, theirs and it can be meditative in some cases. There is their own way to do it mm. and they'll all describe it differently but I'm pretty sure you would not do it unless you had that compulsion and you got pleasure out of the actual process. Even if it is torturous, even if it is so difficult, even if you are feeling like you're bashing your head against a wall, yeah. which I think most of us do. I think everybody's experienced that at some point yeah. in their life. And exactly. And in all sorts of walks of life, we get there. But it doesn't stop you from doing it. Not enough to tell you, no, I don't ever want to do that again. Sure, some probably do, but most of the time do. So, yeah, so that's how. You know, that's, that's my job right now is to get that written component together and coherent in that form so that I pass the examiner's scrutiny um, <laughs> because that's obviously plainly the objective. Do you get a right of reply after the first examination? Oh, yeah, of course you do. Basically, they, they, there are three examiners in this case and they uh, will all come back with a viewpoint mm-hmm. and say there's this gap or that gap or, or something. Well, they may not. There's, it happens that you can be passed without uh, needing for corrections, and then you do. You just correct it. Very rarely, I think, they'll fail outright. Mm-hmm. That's not impossible. That is one of the options. Yeah. Not pass. <laughs> yeah. But most of the time, from a university perspective, it is. it goes to a graduate research committee. So what they'll say, you know, is the work needed to fix it on the basis of these reports so far that it's, we can't do it, we can no longer support it, mm-hmm. or uh, no, it doesn't need much, and we'll just continue until we get it right. right. There's all sorts of means and ways, and again, a bit of a game involved in it all too, because the university basically wants to uh, tick off the the box. Yeah. I believe they got even more motive, because I think a lot of the, basically the money they get from the government for research doesn't come in until it's done. So right. we've supported you for three or four years, get it out there so the spigot opens and the money comes in. So uh, I think that's right. I'm sure I heard that, but uh, I could be wrong on that one. I'll just, I will just go and get the, uh, my minions to do some fact-checking. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. It, anyone who's in academia realises there's, there's politics, there's game-playing, there's all, all the stuff that happens with very large institutions and organisations. What happens with the research? Once, you, once you're done, mm. they give you, if any, corrections. You fix it all up yeah. and they, go, they give you the rubber stamp yep. and they go, done, mm-hmm. you get your doctorate. But what happens with the research? Now, that's, that's actually a, uh, an interesting question because for much of it, the cynic would say it sits and collects dust. But is it ever like is it published anywhere for someone else who let's say for instance it can is be. looking for it? The it goal of a, an academic and a researcher, particularly if you've done a doctorate, is to hopefully get it published. And there is a vast corpus of what's called academic publishing. Alright, so companies like Oxford Press? Yeah, well Oxford you know, they're a general purpose publisher in right. addition to, uh, but they have a strong academic stream. Or well, Palgrave, Macmillan have a long academic stream. And there are lots of academic specialist right, publishers. Right, yeah. You won't see these in the high street bookshops. No, no, no. And it's a very large publishing industry. Mm-hmm. And that the goal is to, to do that because it helps you get jobs. Are you allowed to publish it yourself? Um, I 
not entirely sure, but I don't think it'd even be worthwhile. Um, <laughs> uh, because that, it's be. What about like in, a, in like let's say for instance in a in a digital version that you oh, can look, there, pass yes, yeah, there there could be ways I could show that. I mean, again, because you've got to if you're on the marketplace as wanting to get academic positions, mm-hmm. uh, you show that you've right. done the research and that you may get feedback. There is thing, but again, the the way that prospective employers grade research and publications is on a scale. There is actually a point scale for this. Yeah. So academic publishers, there are tier one publishers, tier two, tier three, tier four. Your goal, the ideal, is to get your PhD thesis, which will become a book. It'll have to be rewritten a fair bit because mm-hmm. there's a different way of writing to your academic examiners compared to what will be a, a broader public will right. not just be strictly academics, be other students, well, I scholars. I've, I, got, I picked up um, one of Neil Cohn's books yeah. uh, online and that was that was a very, very dense read. Exactly. You know, it's research. You know. well, well, this is the thing, right? And so yeah. that's kind of what I'm trying to get yeah. at is, is how how difficult, let's say, for, for a layperson to read your research to understand, let's say, for instance, the, you know, the, the process of making as, yeah. as you... As you express it. Well, you know, that's the thing. I could, I'm trying to go as theory light as possible and make it as accessible as possible because yeah. that's what I believe it should be. At the same time, I know that to for the purposes of a PhD, it has to uh, have the theoretical components put in, footnotes and bibliography, all that sort of business. And then if it were to be published, and I will probably be seeking it as one of the many activities post-PhD. Which we'll get to in a second. It depends who that publisher is and who it is for. Right. So are they also aiming strictly just for university libraries? Because if you are, then it stays strictly academic, but the academic times, you know, they're priced outrageously. You know, a simple book like this would be like £90. Well, and, uh, the, the know, Neil like, Cohn book cost me a pretty penny. Yeah, yeah. The academic publishing, you know, has crazy prices, but the expectation is there's institutional bias, not the general public. But if they feel that there is a general public audience, and again, this is the publisher thinking, right? where is the market? Who might buy it? Who how do we maximise that? How do we reach them? Yep, yep. They think... Well, actually, this book is going to be more, uh, we think it's a more general purpose, more popular. It could be the sort of book that, uh, like Scott McLeod's, uh, so we'll pitch it that way, in which yeah. case you've got to go take the theory and the heavy stuff out. Well, I can I can tell you, reading, uh, reading uh, was it Understanding Comics? Yeah. By Scott McLeod? Yep. Versus Neil Cohn's The Visual uh, visual Language, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Well, the title was the title was longer longer than um, you know Scott McLeod's book. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I mean, right. don't get me wrong; both books had some. They they blew my mind. If if yeah. anyone is uh, wants to geek out on the process of making mm. comics, my recommendation as not being in any way uh, connected to academia would be to read those two books at this stage. Yeah, because I think they give you a br- they give you a really good overview of how everything works. Uh, from a from a psychological point of view, yeah. which mm. is what I found the most fascinating reading yeah. those two books. Yeah, I uh, would go to town and criticise both of them very heavily. <laughs> and, I, and I know we've we've spoken about this yes. uh, before, and and yeah. uh, I was actually quite surprised at your disdain for both of those. I don't both have of disdain, those but I just think there's a great deal wrong in both. But uh, I disagree with, and I would offer alternative arguments and readings on many of those things, but I value them. They are there, but that's the whole point of scholarship is that dialogue. How better do we get closer to understanding than to have multiple viewpoints rather than one and to say and have that robust discussion so that we get better at it. Um, So I will offer mine because I have spent a long time on this and I feel, oh, no, I think this is really where it's going. Mm -hmm. But it, of course... All of it should go out there and then public like yourself and others, you just read it and say, actually, I think you're right, you're not, whatever, or a bit <laughs> yeah. of both, then that's all valid. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with you, Bruce. I don't think anyone will have the credentials to be able to <laughs> turn around and I'm say no you're expert. wrong. I just have uh, <laughs> you know, my opinions, which I've arrived at with a lot of labour, and uh, I feel like I've earned them, but I'm not a... 
uh, a didactic or a tyrant in those views either. I have to say, I was just I'm always open. It's just I have problems with a lot of these things, and uh, for a lot of reasons. And that's <laughs> why you're studying them. Yeah. Uh, what uh, What are you going to do post post doctorate? Oh, that's right. You Get back into making yeah, comics. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's that's actually it. No. One thing that doing the doctorate has taught me is I would not want to be a full-time academic. The politics and the workload that academics have to go through these days is pretty horrible. But I still like to teach. actually enjoy teaching. Yeah. In front of the class, uh, teaching skills, things like that, that's really good. I really enjoy it. I love seeing their work coming through and, 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 and they're blossoming. I mean, there's always students who don't do much and there are those who are really into it and they yeah. really help you. I mean, you learn from them too. But no, making a uh, few projects that could potentially drop. Essentially, uh, my selection of ideas and for projects is sharpened by the need to try and make them pay. Right. So, because I'm on a scholarship with my doctorate, which is lovely, but when that finishes, the income stream finishes with it, and then what? Still have to turn the lights on, don't That's you? That's right. So, yeah. it's not as if I've got a line of books being commissioned. So back to what I was doing, which is create projects, pitches, try and get publishers for it. And if they can publish it, then try and get a grant to support it. Uh, if they buy my time to make them. There's one project which probably uh, my European agent thinks will definitely fly and I just have to create a pitch for. It's a sort of a Holocaust-related story. Mm-hmm. Then there's uh, another one here. Are you going to have time to do all this, Bruce? Well, it's <laughs> yes, I will because <laughs> the way it will work is you're going to have try and put a few irons in the fire. Yeah, right. At the one time, hoping mm-hmm. that one of them will be the no, one that'll right. work and it'll, it'll strike, and then I that'll get the time, and then the others will just have to wait, and then and that's just how it was before and how it will be. Juggling all the plates. Yeah, it's juggling all the plates, and if I can get more teaching or uh, commissions or otherwise, fine. Um, but it's still going to be the back into the precariat. Yeah. That's just the life of creating. And even if you've been around for a long time, unless you just lob into the stratosphere and you join the elite, which, of course, just is a matter of luck, isn't it? It's a matter of just that book. Yeah. I mean, like, say, Farman Henselman, you know, with his little girl mountain tumbler, and suddenly it's picked up everywhere. Who would have predicted? Well, no one could. <laughs> but he just wrote something and drew something that yeah. he just wanted to do, and suddenly everybody wanted it. How can you predict that? You can't. You can't. But it happens. So, and it's good, good on him. It's great mm. that he, he got that. And uh, you, you know, for a creative person, it'd be nice to get there. The only reason, mainly being, is just buy some security. I mean, yeah. They don't have to be precarious anymore. I mean, even at my age, I'm still in that box. So, after 30 years, and, you know, it's a bit disheartening sometimes. Sometimes I don't like that feeling. But I know that, well, it's still what I'm best at, so I'm just going to have to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Who's going to employ 50, mid, mid-50s type guys anyway anymore? Ah, no one is, so I'll have to screw Scott Morrison, I'll have to do my own. <laughs> <laughs> what about what about uh, Fablo as a, as a publishing? Have you thought of that that kind of realm uh, to move into, knowing, you know, considering now you've done the doctorate on the making, yeah. that you've already got the, the publishing arm that you do, you do dabble in, in the, and mm. you have in the past, you know exactly what it takes to get somewhere yeah. to make something. So yeah. have you actually explored that as an idea of maybe trying to, f- I mean, uh, you probably won't make millions, but. It's, know. well, uh, yeah, look, it's difficult to do that from this side of the Yes, yes, I have, but. Needs a lot of seed funding. Yeah, right. And you need to put things out that will try and uh, develop a market. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the most bursting, robust part of the comics market these days is young adult and kids' work. Mm-hmm. We've heard the stories. Dogman is read everywhere. And Rhona Telchemai and all of that. And these books are selling in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies per annum. And... That's terrific, though. What it means is a massive, young marketplace for comics. They're going to get older. They're going to want to read adult comics. Mm -hmm. So you've got all these millions of kids literally reading comics now, and they're going to get older. They're going to want comics that grow old with them, which is terrific. That's an opportunity. 
but because the kid stuff is still they're still relatively in that point at the moment, yeah, that's on the way. So there is a grand opportunity there to start providing material. They're going to certainly go over all the existing canonical books. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a new wave of readers for Mouse, new waves of readers for Chris Ware, and all of these people, plus more. Yeah, and that's terrific. You have to think. Oh, I do. I think. I actually, no, to be honest, I didn't even. Th- I never thought of that that way. But that makes so much sense, and I'm I'm I feel a little bit better about the world. Well, you know, you have to think, but the books have to be there. That's they have right. to grab their imagination. You know, some of them are going to fall away, and not like so many of us who are young yeah. uh, fall away. But a lot are going to want to continue, provided the works are there. Luckily, a lot of them are already there. But there'll be a much bigger marketplace, and they'll want more. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a matter of being in a position to say, "Can I do that?" Maybe, but it's just a, it's, a, it's a money thing. Yeah. Um, I don't have the resources. Do I have the knowledge and the skills? Yeah. Well, I I, I know a lot. So, and I've got you know just talking this is showing you know yeah I can see, um, but it's finding the wherewithal. But all of that would take time away from making the course. Yeah. So that's the only side of that's the flip side. I have done a lot of organising. You know, I've been heavily involved with the first two Perth Comic Arts Festivals yep. in the last two years and I won't be doing it this year just because to get the doctorate done I can't afford the time but it's other people good people are running it should be on uh, it's grown really well we've built something that Perth wanted but they didn't know they wanted but mm. it's there yeah. and I've led some caravans of comics tours overseas I certainly have plans for more but I just again it's not in my realm to do they take moment. a lot of time yeah because I want to get Australian comics into those overseas markets. So, and because I've toured and I've seen more festivals, I know yeah. we could get really good caravan of comics tours into those places and they'll be very receptive. I, I agree. Uh, for, for me, a lot of it has to do with, and it's part of the reason why I do this mm. po- very podcast, is there are so many good creators here mm. that either don't think about it possibly dream about it mm. but have no concept of how that they how they can get their work in other in other cities around the world well it's yeah internet's not enough one thing i've learned by doing a lot of these shows and tours over there if you go there and a physical persons it's noticed yeah and i've spoken with numerous festival directors oh we'd love to get some australian people over here can we make this happen and i said well yeah i know how we can do it. I have like standing invitations to several festivals, you know, Netherlands, Germany, Sweden, uh, Denmark, Poland, you know, all those places, and that's terrific. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot of organisational risk, and we have to get government money to do it, grant money, which of course we know what's, you know, the current environment is not the most kind yeah. to yeah. the Australia Council <laughs> and places like that. Mm-hmm. They're not dead yet. I wish the government was, but they're <laughs> not. And it's possible. Yeah. So if I can get a secure enough base, I will start doing it mm-hmm. because I believe it and just get that. And it will be reciprocal. Yeah. So if we tour there, bring them here. Yeah. So that's also part of a talk is that these comics cultures will do a tour down under as well to show what they do because it's, in the great world of internet, it's just too vast. You yeah. know, you end up focused. I think most people will end up going back to rather than the same troughs all the time because comfortable is easy. It's too vast otherwise. Yeah. You only lose out when you really are looking for something. Yeah. And but if you were, if they were a group of Dutch creators sitting here at a at home cooked comics festival, say, mm. you would pay attention. Yeah. You you would actually if you heard that there were going to be a whole bunch of creators from an overseas country here at a small festival. I think a lot of people go out of their way to go there. I oh, they che- definitely. I would. I'd yeah. go and check it out and see what their stuff's like. Uh, and that's exactly it. You want to know. Mm. You'd be fascinated. Yeah. Because you'll be seeing things you haven't seen before. That's right. And so that I think will work. So, uh, yes, I would love to do continue doing more of that stuff. It's just not been in my remit in the last few years, but definitely post. Yeah, I'd like to continue that. Um, I'm a big believer in it. And... Because, again, it's just about sharing those great stories and those uh, cultures, building bridges. There must be value in that. Uh, There definitely is value in that. You know, because governments and institutions aren't going to do it, so let's just do it at the small scale. 
I agree. I agree. You know, that's that's how I look at it. Same with Southeast Asia and all of that. Similar. I'd love to do the same, you know, because it's there. That's right. That's the thing. I've seen it. Now it's just a matter of just make it visible. Brilliant. Yeah. Bruce, we, we've come to that time. Oh, are it's we? The, okay. <laughs> it's Never the end mind. of the show. I, would, I could continue on yes, for could. a little while. We could, we could, in fact, talk for another yeah, couple yeah. of hours, but uh, we'll save it uh, for another time. Another time. That's the end of this very episode of Graphic Nature. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you use. It'll be greatly appreciated. If you have any thoughts regarding the show, feel free to send an email to feedback at graphicnature.media. You can catch me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For more information about the show, socials, and anything else, uh, you can visit Graphic Nature on the web by typing into your handy web browser or search engine, graphicnature.media. Thanks very much, and uh, go and read some comics. Credits! Written, produced, edited, and presented by Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio consultation and additional production. Archie Cuthbertson, Dan Moore. Credits announcer, Simon Winkler. Theme character voices, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio excerpts of Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, Wortham versus Gaines on Decency Standards, used courtesy of New York City Municipal Archives. You've been listening to Graphic Nature, the podcast.